3: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Nina Kim. Air travel is one of the hardest sectors to make more environmentally friendly for a variety of reasons. But change is in the air, and California could lead the way. We've been an early adopter of trying biofuels for planes, and with our 12 international airports, we're well positioned to guide the nation toward greener flights. That's according to UC Berkeley climate and energy expert, Ethan Elkind, our partner in Forum's new transportation series called In Transit. And we want to hear from you. How have you been trying to reduce your carbon footprint when you fly? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. How can we make flying greener? That's one of the questions my guest Ethan Alkind thinks about a lot. He's director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law and wrote a report last summer called Clean Takeoff, all about ways California can green its aviation sector and even influence the rest of the nation. Ethan Alkind is also our partner in a new forum series we're calling In Transit – all about our state's
4: changing transportation challenges and
3: needs. Welcome, Ethan.
4: Thank you, Mina. It's good to be here for the inaugural In Transit episode. This is fun. <laughs> yeah.
3: Thanks so much for being our partner on this. And I love this topic because it was something that I really didn't know very much about. So can you start by just giving us a sense of how bad flying is for the environment?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's both Not too bad, but very bad. And and the reason for that is that it's actually not a huge percentage of our global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's about two and a half percent of our overall carbon footprint globally. Although it's actually more than that, because there are other emissions as well beyond the carbon pollution. So for example, there's fine and ultrafine particulate matter, there's uh, NOx and SOx emissions, and also water vapor, which creates these contrails, those water vapor trails in the sky that we see during the day. And at At night in particular, that can lead to additional warming by trapping heat that would otherwise radiate out of the earth. So actually those other emissions, those non-carbon emissions actually have a much greater effect in compound uh, airline, airplane emissions. But the other challenge, the reason why, you know, we'd say on one hand, it's not a huge part of the footprint is that it's also a very hard to decarbonize sector. There's no obvious technology solution to reduce the emissions from aviation. There's some short-term steps that we can take, uh, we can talk about in a bit, Uh, but it's also a growing sector. So that also makes it worse because as we expect aviation to airline travel to increase. And as it increases, and as we reduce emissions from other sectors, like as we're doing from electric with electric vehicles and renewable energy, the percentage is going to greatly increase of our overall carbon footprint with aviation. And just from an individual perspective, it's one of the most polluting things that an individual can do in terms of the carbon impact.
3: Are you When you talk about it's one of the most polluting things that an individual can do and that the aviation sector is going to see a, a lot of growth, do you mean we're just going to see a
4: lot more people flying? Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, particularly, you know, it's a global issue. So as China, uh, India, other countries are developing, you know, they want to do what people in the developed world have been enjoying for decades now, which is take airplane flights. And especially as people move farther away from family and and friends, uh, seeking job opportunities and and other things, you know, aviation just becomes uh, more central to more people's lives. And so that growth, along with our economy, is going to mean that this sector is going to become one of the major contributors to greenhouse gas emissions going forward.
3: Yeah, not only have we been enjoying flying, but it also sounds like there's going to be growth in private flying as well, as we read more about people with private jets or chartering private jets.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Private jet travel is increasing dramatically. There's different business models now where people can take fractional uh ownership over private jets. So you don't necessarily have to be, you know, a, a big celebrity, or Elon Musk or uh, you know, someone like that to, to take a private jet these days. So uh private jet flights have increased dramatically. They're they're up actually seven percent since 2019. There were about three uh, over three million private jet flights last year alone, and it's actually pretty hard to get the data on uh, how much these private mm. uh, jets are emitting overall. But uh, but the overall carbon footprint takes into account both the commercial aviation sector and these private jets, and uh, and it is very polluting, particularly when you only have a few people on these jets.
3: If you live near an airport, are you also subject? to like a blast of the pollution that these planes put out. I imagine there's other issues, too,
4: yeah, there's, you know, it's really what we would call an equity issue, where the impacts of aviation really fall disproportionately on low-income communities, communities of color that are often located near airports. Because you know most of the fuel is actually burned on takeoff and landing, about a quarter of the fuel, and so all that pollution is really literally raining down on communities that are often already impacted by a whole host of other industrial sites too. I mean, anyone who's you know driven in neighborhoods near airports has, has seen that there's often that's where where we locate a lot of those industrial facilities. And there's also a huge noise impact. I took a tour of an elementary school once, just outside of LAX, Los Angeles International Airport, and it was pretty heartbreaking because you know, sitting in a classroom, every two minutes you would hear just a deafening roar of the airplanes taking off, the windows shaking, and you know, out in the playground, the kids have to deal with this. And you just think about what an impact that makes, you know, physically, psychologically, for you know, kids who are already disadvantaged, you know, growing up in, in, in difficult circumstances and in communities, in many cases. And now they have to deal with uh, this kind of disruption just to their thought process and, and, you know, let alone the pollution impact. So this is a very visceral issue for a lot of low income communities located near these airports. And, you know, unfortunately, just they don't have the resources to really get involved in many cases in these policy debates. You know, if if they're worried about, you know, pollution, it's often from that that industrial facility next door or the freeway running through their community. Many of the organizations dedicated to preserving the health and environmental health of these communities simply don't have the bandwidth to even get involved in these aviation debates, which are often on the national and sometimes international scale.
3: Yeah. We're talking with Ethan Elkind about the contribution of the air travel industry of aviation generally to climate change and what we can do to make air travel greener and also its broader impacts related to noise and other environmental pollution. You, our listeners, are welcome to join the conversation with your questions about this. And I'm also curious if you take into consideration how your flying habits contribute to climate change and have tried to mitigate that. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I can tell by what you're describing that it's going to take a lot of big things to make significant change in terms of the climate impact of air travel. But I'd like to start on the ground with us as passengers, and if there are things that We can do as individuals uh, to try to reduce our carbon footprint when we when we fly? Or do we just not have to fly?
4: (laughs) Yeah, well, this is one of those tricky issues. You know, people who care about climate change, other environmental problems. You know, what can I do about it? Are there things I can do in my life? And sure, there are always steps that we can take as individuals to reduce our own impact on the world, but ultimately these are systemic challenges, right? We're going to need, you know, society-wide, system-wide changes. And so, you know, our role as voters and advocates uh, also play a role there. But just as consumers, just kind of taking it from, from that perspective, I mean, obviously people could choose not to fly. Um, I, you know, I'm an environmentalist. I consider myself one and I, I work on climate change for a living, but I, I happen to love travel. I think it's one of the great uh benefits of living in this modern world is that we can go explore and, and get an airplane to go places that you know we're often in the old days, impossible to get to, or, or very risky, you know, if you had to travel by boat or, you know, by horse and buggy or whatever the old transportation would have been. So I love travel and I, you know, it's hard to tell people you shouldn't fly. Um, And I don't really think people necessarily should be shamed from flying. However, you know, if you have the option to avoid a flight, that is an environmental good. I mean, flying less is certainly you know one solution, but it's not realistic to tell the world you know not to fly anymore. So we can't really rely on that nudge um, as a solution. So for people who want to at least reduce the impact of their flying, I mean, there's some basic steps they can take. I mean, if if they can afford to, you know, better to book a nonstop flight. I think most people probably prefer nonstop flights anyways. But you know, as I mentioned, you know, 23% of the fuel for takeoff and landing, if you have a nonstop, if you're flying you know across continent, you know, obviously across the ocean, that can reduce uh the emissions uh for sure and then there's a few other other things as well i mean people can purchase offsets carbon offsets for their flights they can also try to book on airlines that have a more fuel efficient uh design you know more uh, efficient airframe and there's some airlines you you can kind of google around to see which airlines and which types of uh, airplane models are are more fuel efficient and you know not flying first class
3: Essentially newer planes are more fuel efficient right than the older the big old yeah,
4: planes. Typically and, and and we're improving airframe design as well so I think as more you know newer models roll out I think we'll see more more efficient airplanes as well. But yeah just and I was also mentioning you know avoiding first class because that takes up a lot of space that uh you could fit more people in.
3: Right because the idea is is that it's uh the more people you have on a flight, the less I guess essentially fuel per passenger uh, that is being attributed. Uh, mm-hmm. But is this information readily available to us in terms of like, say the uh, the the status of the airplane, <laughs> the fuel efficiency yeah. of the airplane or the year of the model, or uh, the availability to to by carbon offsets, or or even to know uh, the impact of our flight, the carbon impact of our flight.
4: Yeah, no, Mina, this is a great question. I think there, you know, there's a lot more that could be done just in general to really sort of make more transparent to people the impacts of their decisions on a whole host of things, but including when we go to buy airplane tickets, because you're absolutely right. I think for most people, they would have to know about these impacts in advance, take time to actively search out this information. We don't make it easy for people uh, to, to access that information, although there are some positive changes. So, for example, if you go to uh, book a flight on Google, now you'll see that. They'll actually list the carbon uh, footprint of the different flight options. So if you care about that, you can actually see now, hey, you know, there's two flights that are basically comparable in price and, you know, one has a smaller carbon footprint. I'm going to go with that option. But I think there's a lot more we could be doing to really kind of nudge people, be more transparent. I mean, everything from, you know, the gas pump to the electricity we use and certainly with aviation as well. And and these nudges by the way can make a difference. I did see one recent UC Davis study uh where they they sort of had a control group of people who had those nudges on carbon footprint versus not. And, and people were willing to pay about $20 more uh for a flight with a smaller carbon footprint. Uh you know, even even when the flights were were uh you know, were basically uh one was nonstop and one wasn't. They're willing to pay more. So that's you know, that's a positive sign.
3: That is a really positive sign because I wondered if people would only because I think the benefit you derive from choosing a flight, say with a smaller carbon footprint, feels like it can be more indirect, right? More <laughs> removed mm-hmm. from the consumer, as opposed to the choices we make for things that are greener, because we feel a, a faster and more direct benefit. For example, by saving money or something like that. So I I have wondered whether or not that would take off. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not mean to use a yeah, pun. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> and as I said it, I'm like, oh my god, I just used a pun. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're talking with Ethan Alkind all about ways to make air travel. Greener, And your listeners are invited to join the conversation with your questions and comments. If you've changed your flying habits in response to climate change, uh, if you are curious about things that you can do and also what's on the horizon with regard to steps the state is taking or new technology, because we'll get into all of that after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Runner Lauren Fleshman won medals and set records, but she also fought against entrenched ideas about how female athletes should train and look. And she challenges those norms in a new book called Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. Today, we're talking about how we can make air travel greener through technology, policy, and our own individual actions. Ethan Elkind is with us, Director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. He's also our partner on Forum's new transportation series called In Transit. And we want to hear from you have you changed your flying habits in response to climate change? How? Do you ever choose alternatives to flying? What are your workarounds? What questions do you have about how to make aviation more sustainable? Call us 866-733-6786, email forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqedforum. Anna writes, I want to hear about buying carbon offsets. I hear horror stories about some offsets that are sold. Ethan, how good a method is that?
4: Yeah, well, Anna, that's a uh, a really important question. I mean, first of all, offsets are one way to offset your carbon impact if you're flying, if you have to take the flight, and they're really not too expensive actually uh, to offset, like even a typical cross country flight, you know, originating from here in California. But there are a lot of controversies for sure around offsets, and most of it really revolves around how legitimate. Is the offset? So, for example, you know, one offset might be well dollars to go purchase a forest that might otherwise have been cut down, were it not for the dollars. The problem, and this is just you know one example, is that you don't know for sure that that forest actually would have been cut down. Maybe there really was no uh, danger of that happening, so that money actually isn't really going to any additional uh, carbon benefits. So, I think if people are going to be purchasing offsets, it's really important to do so from you know as sort of reputable a source as possible making sure that you know ideally you can really verify that these offsets wouldn't have happened otherwise that the money is making a difference and you know there's some technology solutions now to really give us much more assurance so for example, there, there are companies that are taking uh biomass, basically kind of excess waste product from from plants and turning it into a compact fuel and then burying it underground. And in that situation, you know, you know, without absent that company doing that work, there's no way that biomass would have been ejected underground. It would have probably decomposed and and kind of returned to the atmospheric carbon cycle. So you know, it's really important to make sure that there it's a reputable offset program and that you can have some confidence that there truly is additional uh, carbon benefits being achieved from the dollars.
3: Hmm. Let me go to caller Martin in San Leandro. Hi, Martin. You're on.
2: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. I personally have chosen to not fly anymore unless absolutely necessary, and nobody shamed me into doing that. I did that because in the first three months of the pandemic, the New York Times reported that our CO2 emissions globally went down by 8% on an annual basis, which is from what the IPCC report says, I believe, would need to be done every year for the next 20 or 30 years for us to save our world for our children. I made that choice to be empowering my son to be able to live in a livable world, and I really chafe at the suggestion that I share that suggestion with other people as being shaming. We need to stop the language around shaming and start talking about empowering ourselves to make collective decisions together to save our planet for our Mm -hmm. children.
3: Well, Martin, thank you for sharing what you do. And also thank you for for talking about language, because I do feel like this is a, a problem or not a problem, but more something that I do feel like we grapple with with regard to how to talk about achieving positive changes for our planet and addressing climate change ethan what are your thoughts on what martin just said
4: well, first of all, Martin, I commend you for taking personal responsibility for a, a really vexing, very alarming problem that we've been dealing with now for you know certainly in our consciousness for you know a couple decades, maybe politically or so. But you know we've known about this issue for a half century, and it's getting much worse. We're talking about climate change, so I think the fact that that you are making that step, I think that's that's definitely commendable. I think you know part of the challenge is that we just simply don't have enough people in society who care that much about this problem and that's just sort of an unfortunate fact. Now maybe that can be changed if we with better sort of outreach and you know media coverage of the issue but the fact is not everyone is going to care about their environmental footprint. And so relying on people taking sort of, sort of personal responsibility and that it becoming a cultural sort of thing that takes hold I think that's there's only going to be a, a limit to that. It's not that we shouldn't try for that. I mean, there's going to be no one single solution to this problem. So every little bit helps. But I think if we want to fully decarbonize the aviation sector, which is really what we need to do, it's going to take more than just relying on people's sort of personal actions. And we're going to need some systemic changes as well, some requirements but um, yeah. and, and mandates and, and regulatory approaches, not just relying on, on the sort of cultural changes.
3: Well, let's talk about what's happening at the state. Level. For one, I understand that California has been leading in the deployment of what's known as sustainable aviation fuel. Talk about this. What is it?
4: Yeah. So sustainable aviation fuel, or those on the inside call it SAF. I personally have never gravitated towards that that pronunciation, but uh, just calling it sustainable aviation fuel is fine. And and it's it's kind of a grab bag uh, term. It basically means any lower carbon or potentially zero carbon fuel that could be used to power aircrafts. And, you know, right now it's basically mixing in biofuels with our conventional fossil jet fuel. And that's what we did actually in the early days of on-road transportation, you know, before electric vehicles took hold, you know, this was sort of our hope to reduce the carbon content of petroleum fuel a little bit by mixing in biofuels. So when I say biofuels, I mean taking things like used cooking oil, uh, certain crops like cover crops that hopefully aren't grown purposely for this purpose, but, you know, sort of excess, you know, uh, agricultural crops or, or waste taking municipal solid waste is another example, and so those are the sort of the feedstocks of this biofuel that's then refined and blended into the jet fuel. So that's one kind of big category that the state right now is is leaning really heavily on because we don't have you know a, a full hundred percent zero emission fuel. Although there are some options out there which uh, I could talk about, so uh, I'll, I'll give uh, three more examples of uh, of potential zero emission fuels beyond the biofuels. So the first you know everyone's familiar with battery electric vehicles. Well, unfortunately, batteries are just too heavy to power flights long distances. So I think in the best case scenario, and I'm, I'm bullish on batteries, so you know I, I hope I'm wrong, but I think it's pretty obvious at this point, just in terms of the physics, that battery electrics are, uh, airplanes are really only going to be viable for short-haul flights. There may be some hybrid versions where you could have batteries for takeoff and then relying on other fuels, but it's not going to be a long-term solution, although it could help a little bit when near-term uh, short-haul flights. Then there's hydrogen which some people you know, may be familiar with, like hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. And there's some question marks if that's going to work. But hydrogen right now is produced mostly by fossil fuels, but ideally it would be produced by surplus solar and wind energy and then could be converted into energy in the airplane uh, via a fuel cell on board. But there's a lot of questions around the infrastructure and whether this is really feasible. But there's some startups working that direction. And then the last thing I'll mention, the last potential fuel, is what we would call a synthetic fuel or an e-fuel. And it, this is an interesting technology. It's not really economical right now, but could be, which is where we capture carbon from the atmosphere and then essentially mix it with uh, hydrogen produced from electrolysis to create a synthetic fossil fuel. And the advantage of this fossil fuel is that it's not created from carbon that's pulled out of the ground. So it's not making climate change worse. It's essentially a carbon neutral fuel, but it can m- replicate you know, exactly what you know, current jet fuel does in the air. And so those are basically our options at this point. We're going to need a lot more research and development. None of these are, other than the biofuel blends, are really ready anytime soon. This is going to be a long play, a multi-decade effort. And that's why it's so important that we get started researching and developing these and maybe some other technologies that are out there uh, as soon as as soon as soon possible.
3: Mm. Well, let me go to caller Doug in San Francisco, who I think has a question or comment about hydrogen. Hi Doug, you're on.
5: Hi there, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, perfect segue. I'll actually do these in reverse. I thank you for your comment on the on the hydrogen front. I'm in this space, and I've done a lot of research in, in into this, and I've seen some initial prototype spec drawings uh, that Boeing is working on a hydrogen. Um, it's not a fuel cell, but actually burning the hydrogen as a fuel in their engines. And it includes a cryogenic tank um, on the top of the of the plane. Uh, it's it's not very it's not a, a very sexy looking airplane, if you will. It's got this <laughs> uh, this very bulbous bulbous uh, nose that you know uh, contains the hydrogen uh, you know tank. Um, but for, from what I can tell, it's really the most like the most carbon. Uh, you know, negative, uh, option, you know, to produce hydrogen, uh, from water through electrolysis via solar or, or, uh, or what have you, uh, renewable energy. Um, and my question to, to your guest, uh, is what, what he thinks needs to be done? Like, why, why aren't there more incentives and push, uh, you know, to, to kind of, Advanced that technology and i want to make a one quick comment before i pass it back to you i used to be a traveling consultant with uh you know a big big four consulting firm and during covid um obviously everybody had to stop traveling and then since travel restrictions have been lifted all the big firms like pwc McKinsey, accenture etc have continued a very light travel uh, arrangement with their clients Mm -hmm preferring to do things over zoom and the clients obviously prefer it. I, when I was doing that, I found it to be so over the top and wasteful. I didn't understand why we had to fly every single week to Chicago, Philadelphia, whatever. And I've just felt that it's been a, it's been one of the many, you know, silver linings of the of the horrible pandemic is that, you know, a lot of business travel has, um, you know, declined significantly and gone the, the Zoom the Zoom meeting route. So thanks thanks so much. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the whole advancing hydrogen fuel thing in, in aeronautics.
3: Thanks. D- Doug, thanks.
4: Really appreciate that. Ethan? Yeah. Well, Doug, you raised actually two really interesting points. So, I mean, first, just to take the last thing you mentioned, the business travel. I mean, that's a whole separate area of flight that I totally agree with you. I think that is one potential very positive outcome from COVID that businesses realize now that the advantage of Zoom. And I've certainly seen that or heard that anecdotally from people, you know, salespeople who they used to have to go wine and dine someone just to get down to a 20-minute sales pitch at the end. Now they can just get right to the sales pitch and, you know, improve efficiency that way uh, and getting rid of those, you know, all hands on deck in-person meetings for these global companies. So, you know, business travel is a whole separate thing. And I think some of our, our pricing strategies, you know, right now, the more you fly, the cheaper it gets to fly. You know, maybe we need to kind of rethink how uh, airlines are, are pricing these uh, these plane trips for, for business travelers in particular. But to get back to your question around hydrogen, first of all, thank you for pointing out that hydrogen also can just be combusted directly in the airplane. Yeah, I mean, that's two kind of different models. One would be powering a fuel cell, one would be uh, combusting the hydrogen uh, directly. Uh, but your question... Question was basically what can be done to boost it. And I think there's there's two things that, and they both revolve around policy. So the first is that we need policymakers to be investing heavily in the research and development and deployment of hydrogen and airplanes. It's going to be a long time to get this going. There are some startups uh, that I've, I've chatted with a few of them, and they've got a long time horizon, but they're trying to get their sort of demonstration flights going. And the government can play a real strong role in supporting that. And I'd also just point out related to that, that, you know, we are really trying to boost hydrogen production in general in this country. So the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which just passed last year, has a whole, and actually the infrastructure, bipartisan infrastructure law as well, has a whole host of incentives, dollars to boost hydrogen production. The key thing there really is going to be to ensure that it's truly zero emission hydrogen. It's not produced by fossil fuel, natural gas produced by zero emission sources. And the second thing, just very quickly, is a strong policy signal, you know, from jurisdictions all over the world that we are going to decarbonize aviation, that would send the signal to industry to invest in things like hydrogen because they know they have to meet a stringent target that's coming a few decades away, but sooner than, than they'd probably like.
3: Well, Karen writes, while we continue to do our part on an individual level, this shift to the individual seems to excuse corporations' outsized role in the problem, make the airlines update and green the aircrafts, pass legislation, and mandate structural changes. Ethan, you mentioned sustainable aviation fuel, and as I understand it, there are airlines that are mixing that in when they fly now, but how much are they doing this, and what are the barriers or challenges that they point to in terms of being able to do it more?
4: Yeah, well, most of the airlines have actually signed on to sort of modest sustainable aviation fuel goals, and they are blending them in right now. So, United, for example, uh, Alaska Airlines, but it's right now just less than 0.1% of our total aviation fuel supply is from sustainable aviation fuel, you know, that that biofuel that I was talking about. So, the airlines (laughs) have committed, but they've also, you know, tried to fight strong regulatory action. You know, they really want this to be all incentive based. They don't want, you know, they only want the carrot they don't want the stick um and you know there are some concerns that some of this is you know essentially a way for them to to sort of greenwash you know they can blend in a very small amount of biofuel then they can sort of you know Crow about it to their to their consumers, but they are going to be critical partners in this. There's no question. And the one thing I you know I can be sympathetic to the airlines about is that right now these biofuels, sustainable aviation fuels, are about two to five times the price of conventional jet fuel. So you know if we really want to see the airlines do more of this, there has to be you know strong concerted policy action to bring down that price. I think there's a lot that could be done to bring it down, and then ultimately to create a level playing field where all the airlines have to com- you know have to compete equally. For for this, uh, for this more sustainable fuel.
3: I see, and I imagine using more of it would significantly drive up the cost, maybe, of a plane ticket. I- I'm wondering, though, how much authority the state has to require airlines to have certain percentages or to use low-carbon fuel for their flights. Um, I-, I guess I'm thinking about how they were able to use... The auto industry and our population size and market share and so on to be able to demand these kinds of things. Is that a model for the way California could go with regard to airlines as well?
4: Well, if you listen to the industry, California has zero authority to to require uh, <laughs> any sort of uh, sustainable aviation fuel. We can only provide those carrots, no sticks allowed. Um, and you know, your, your point about the on-road vehicle sector and how, how much success we've had in California promoting zero emission vehicles is a really critical one. But unfortunately, there's a different legal environment uh, at play here. So when it comes to on-road vehicles, California has a special carve-out in the Clean Air Act to set more aggressive tailpipe standards. Standards on on conventional, you know, on road vehicles. We don't have that carve out for aviation. There's there's strong, you know, federal laws on aviation governing the regulation of aviation. It's actually an issue that we're researching now at our at our center at UC Berkeley Law School to see just how much authority California might have to actually wield the stick, not just the carrot. And I think there are some interesting, innovative proposals out there. Some of them are just going to have to be tested in court. But uh, we do have, for example, in the state, a low carbon fuel standard which mandates that fuel providers reduce the carbon content of their fuel by a certain percentage every year now, out to 2030. And, and the California Air Resources Board, which is the agency responsible for this rule, is is you know, talking about extending it out. Right now, it's sort of an opt-in on the aviation side, meaning that there's no requirement that aviation fuel reduce. But if you do reduce your carbon content, if you are an, an airplane that's using uh, more sustainable aviation fuel, you'll get some credits under the program and some incentives, basically. But there's talk about making that a mandatory program, bringing in aviation fuel under that sort of that carbon cap, just like, you know, conventional on-road transportation fuel, you know, gasoline, petroleum is under that. So there are some tools that California has, and you're absolutely right. We have a huge market. What we do really impacts the whole country. So if we have the legal authority, there's a lot California can do with our history promoting zero emission technologies and other contexts, which we could bring to the aviation sector.
3: Hmm. Well, this listener tweets, I often fly partway and take Amtrak for the remainder, especially westbound against the jet stream. A big obstacle notorious among business travelers is hidden city fares. It can cost twice as much to book the same flight without a connection, as with one. We're taking a closer look at the aviation sector as part of Forum's new transportation series, In Transit, with Ethan Elkine, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. We're talking about how we can make air travel greener, and we welcome your thoughts and questions, listeners. Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED forum, or call us at 866 733 6786 More after the break. Stay with us.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kin.
1: We're talking about
3: how California is poised to lead the way to make air travel greener with technology that it's using, some policies, rules that it's setting with regard to sustainable fuels. And we're talking about individual actions. You, our listeners, can join the conversation telling us if you've changed your flying habits in response to climate change, how or how you choose alternatives to flying or workarounds to try to lower your carbon footprint. Of course, tell us what questions you have about sustainable aviation technology or policy. Ethan Alkind is with us with UC Berkeley School of Law, director of their climate program at the Center for Law, Energy and the Environment. And let me go to Marshall in Campbell. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for waiting.
2: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sorry, I'm at a, my kid's Lunar New Year celebration here. <laughs> um, all, all these Solutions sound amazing. Um, maybe not the hydrogen giant hydrogen thing on board, but um, I think this is fantastic. One question I has: I follow the um, Elon Jet Twitter handle uh, on Twitter, which does a great job of kind of highlighting um, a how often he uses a private jet, but b how just the insane amount of carbon that private jets emit, even from a short trip between like San Jose and san francisco um i guess my question is in the interim before you know to bridge to all these technologies in order to raise money shouldn't we just be taxing the hell out of these private jet flights particularly these short-haul flights um and i'll just leave it at that thank you very Mm. much
4: taxing the hell out of them says marshall what do you think ethan (laughs)
3: thanks marshall
4: Well, Marshall, I think it's a great point. It seems like uh, it should be a political winner, right? But this is challenging to raise taxes on the wealthy. I mean, we've we saw this just with the Prop Thirty debate here in California uh, last fall, where there was a proposal to raise taxes on people making over two million dollars a year to fund electric vehicle infrastructure that went down. I mean, ultimately, it's going to take the state. By the way, doesn't have I don't think the state has a sovereignty to to tax uh, those kinds of flights. I think this would be a a federal program, and I think it's it's going to be a hard thing to do, but that would be a way potentially to discourage some of these private jet flights, um, but at the same time, you know, we're talking about the the super wealthy. They they may not really care, but you're, you're absolutely right. This is a major problem. I mean, just in, in I saw one stat, for example, that in 2016 the emissions from private jets were equivalent to the emissions from the entire country of Denmark. So they're you know they're five to fourteen times more polluting per capita than commercial flights. So private jets are absolutely. Uh, you know, a, a big area of concern and problem when it comes to our emissions. And I, I think, you know, taxation might help at the margins, and it could raise money for uh, for research and development for clean technologies. That would be good. But that would have to be done, like I say, at the federal level. The, the state and local governments, are, their hands are a bit tied in terms of how much they can levy taxes. I think they have some flexibility, but really not enough, probably, to to make a difference there.
3: Mm. And why some nations, not ours, are considering even banning uh, private Jets <laughs> as yeah. well.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, let me go to caller Marsha in Santa Rosa. Hi, Marsha, you're on.
5: Hello. Yeah, when you were talking about hydrogen, I was thinking about the Zeppelin
2: and wondered if the fact that that one big crash happened means
3: that they'll never look at that technology again mm. and if
2: it wasn't
5: efficient in its own right.
4: Mm-hmm. yeah marcia i we don't want another hindenburg either <laughs> <laughs> i know it's funny when i when i talked to the uh God. the hydrogen air uh aviation startup that was actually a question i asked him you know what's the sort of technology here and at the very least what's the public sort of perception you know of, of the the safety risk here and you know the fact is jet fuel is flammable as well so <laughs> we're getting in an airplane you know we're already dealing with a very combustible uh fuel but the hydrogen is cooled in these aviation and in these hydrogen planes. Uh, it's in a liquid format. Um, and everything I've been told is that it's really apples and oranges uh, looking at the Hindenburg uh, compared to hydrogen on an airplane. But, you know, part of this is why we, we need to see these demonstration flights, uh, really just to assure the public, you know, explain the technology, demonstrate that these are are safe. And with any new technology, you know, there's going to be questions like this and sometimes unforeseeable risks. But this is something that, you know, engineers are, are well aware of. And, you know, I'm not a physicist but a, a, or a chemical engineer, but uh, I. What I've been told is that it basically is not an area of concern, although certainly in the public's mind, and I think, Marcia, your question goes to this, you know, hydrogen is, is going to have a, a bit of a perception battle, at least at first, to to overcome. Um,
3: you mentioned that sustainable alternative fuels is probably the closest thing we have, meaning that these new technologies are a ways off. And so I guess the question is, are there things that can be done using conventional fuels that we are not already doing uh, that would have potentially a big impact.
4: Yeah, there are some interesting innovations out there. Uh, There's one company that I'm aware of that actually captures exhaust right at the source. They're they're working with trucks now, but that's a little sort of carbon capture device. You know, potentially that could be rigged to an airplane so that it captures the carbon that's being emitted uh, and then can, you know, package it in some way, make sure it doesn't get emitted into the atmosphere. Um, But I think, you know, otherwise we're really going to be sort of left with a a series of policy choices kind of around the edges, whether it's, it's pricing, whether it's fuel efficiency, blending in biofuels, focusing in on the long term solution, uh, you know, long term technology solutions. That's probably our, our best approach at this point. And then making some of those synthetic uh, fossil fuels that I was talking about uh, earlier. The, the one other Potential option. It's an important one, I think, for other reasons, anyways. But is looking at alternatives on the ground to getting around uh, at long distances. So high speed rail, for example, you know, it's in use all over the world. You know, Japan, China, Korea, uh, many European nations. We're trying to build one here in California. As I know, you've covered on this show before. Uh, mm-hmm. Our project is, you know, obviously uh, behind schedule and over budget in California. But imagine if we could replace. You know, most of those LA to San Francisco or to Southern California and Northern California flights with high-speed rail, that would make a really big difference. And we have some examples of this. So uh, when the high-speed rail was opened between the cities of Barcelona and Madrid and Spain, which is somewhat comparable to you know northern northern to southern california commutes. In the first year, air travel declined 20% and the rail ridership uh, in that corridor went up 28%. And so it's been a much more convenient option for people instead of flying there. consumers are happier to get on a high-speed train than wait through the airport lines and TSA and and all of that. So I think thinking about high-speed on-ground uh, options is 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 an important way to help divert some of those short haul flights, which you know as we have talked about in this hour are some of the most polluting because of the fuel you're burning for takeoff and landing. And so it makes sense once you're up in the air, just keep flying. You know the short haul flights are very inefficient in that respect.
3: Yeah. Well, this listener writes, I wish we had a more robust high speed rail system in the United States. If we had fast and convenient rail travel, I feel Americans would take fewer flights. But today traveling by train is slow and inconvenient. Compared to air travel. And yes, we have covered high-speed rail, but we plan to do – it's been a little while, and we plan to do Mm -hmm. again with you, Ethan. Um, There's something that you said that I was struck by earlier, which was about how it's hard to tax the wealthy and so on. And then you also talked about how not everybody flies, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So it is expensive. And – it raises another equity question with regards to who should be subsidizing the kinds of investments that you're talking about into sustainable fuels and other technologies to make aviation greener. Given the fact that it actually is a smaller percentage, even in the U.S., um, than we may think.
4: Yeah, I mean, what, I, what I've read in that is that in the United States, the, the median American has never been on an airplane. So this is definitely, you know, a, an upper income issue or, or caused issue and globally some estimates are that 1% of humans who fly are responsible for about half of all air travel emissions so you know this it's something that takes money to fly and most people you know can't afford to do it certainly globally and so there is this equity question of you know if you're going to tax society as a whole you know, for some of the solutions to, uh, like sustainable aviation fuels, for example, is it really fair to tax drivers who never get up in the airplane, uh, to make those flights, uh, you know cleaner and and reduce the pollution and you know there's no real easy answer for this I mean obviously we I think one response would be a more progressive tax code and making sure it's not lower income people paying for this that you know this is something that's more broad-based and tied to to income but of course you know the benefits unfortunately would come disproportionately to those lower income people who right now are otherwise experiencing disproportionate harm from aviation so if we can solve this problem that wealthy people are creating the benefits will disproportionately accrue to those who are low income. But I think this really gets to the question of how we design the policies, you know, where are those tax dollars coming from? If we're if we're requiring low carbon fuel, does that add cost to low income drivers? You know that's going to then subsidize research to benefit uh, you know the aviation industry, which is more geared towards you know upper income people in general. Now of course you know some lower income people do fly, so I don't want to cast too broad of a brush. But absolutely, I think these equity issues are are really tricky for policymakers to work through, and I think it does take careful policy design.
3: Well, Caroline writes, we live by SFO. Is leaded gas used by planes? And if so, is that a problem in regards to exposing our children and ourselves to lead? If so, how can we pressure the airlines at SFO to use cleaner fuel? Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, I, I have not seen lead listed as one of the the pollutants. I mean, I think I mentioned this up top, but it's really about fine and ultrafine particulate matter, uh, oxides of nitrogen, uh, sulfuric uh, oxides, and and then the water vapor issue. Lead is not typically cited as uh, as one of the pollutants that people have to worry about when it comes to uh, to aviation emissions. But this actually raises the the point, which is that you know under the Clean Air Act, these the pollutants I just mentioned are are regulated and states have to regulate them. So there is the potential that California could be more aggressive on our in-state aviation sector and regulating these conventional Air pollutants as a way to simultaneously reduce the the sort of the carbon co pollutants that are emitted as well. So that's also an area that I think is going to need a little more exploration. And of course, you know, California has bad air quality. We made a lot of strides because of the Clean Air Act, but we've never been in what's so called uh, attainment with uh, federal standards. We've always been in non attainment, uh, and we have some of the most polluted air basins in the country. So we haven't had enough success, but you know, there's a potential to use a Clean Air Act to address some of those conventional pollutants.
3: We're talking about how to make air travel greener with Ethan Alkine, director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Ernest in Berkeley next. Hi, Ernest. You're on. Hi. How are you, dear? Well, what's on your mind? Well, um,
2: I just, as a point of information, first, thank you for providing such a... Um, Beautiful program today. I have started in June of 2021 an organization called the Jet Perfect Foundation, and our mission statement um, is to research and develop alternative energy for aviation and aerospace. Hmm. And right now, we're looking at improving on energy density for batteries. Uh, Ethan, did you discuss that at all?
4: Yeah, Ernest, I did uh, mention batteries as a potential solution for short-haul flights, um, but you know, given their weight, I, no one I've talked to seems to think these are really going to be a long-term solution. You know, barring some major breakthrough in battery chemistry and energy density to provide trans-oceanic or transcontinental flights.
3: Short-haul flights, if they are used broadly, batteries among them, if we have a, an electric fleet for short-haul flights, how big of an impact can that make? How big of a dent?
4: Uh, well, it, 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 I haven't looked at the numbers sort of breaking out aviation emissions, you know, short haul versus long haul. But like in a state like California, you know, that's basically our, most of our carbon footprint, you know, from in-state emissions because it's yeah. those those LA to, you know, again, Southern California to Northern. I don't want to be too centric about San Francisco or LA because we have Sacramento and San Diego, of course, and, um, and Burbank, lots of airports. Um but uh, the short haul flights are very polluting. And so, uh, you know, if batteries could replace some of those flights and I I've talked to a a pilot who flies an electric airplane, he flies out of Fresno. So I, I think he can just about make it to the Bay area from Fresno in an electric airplane today. And, you know, the hope is that in 10 years that'll be routine and he can go farther than that. But he actually raved about the benefits of flying an electric airplane, very similar to how, you know, early adopters of electric vehicles were talking about how quiet the cars are and how fast they accelerate. He was describing the exact same thing with an electric airplane that, the, the takeoff, the quietness, the smoothness was really impressive. So I, I think there is a role for battery electric planes, but it's just not going to be that long-term solution. It's not going to, you know, get you to Tokyo or Hong Kong or over over to Europe from California here.
3: Well, Ron writes, I don't want to become an expert in airline emissions. So a carbon tax, please. <laughs> your thoughts on Ron.
4: Yeah. Well, a, a carbon tax, you know, a lot of economists think this would sort of be the silver bullet to deal with all of our. Problems that if we just you know incorporated the actual pollution costs, the, the impacts to the climate of of carbon-based fuels, that that would uh, send the price signal to market, and the market would adapt. Uh, unfortunately, politically, it's just been a non-starter. Um, there just isn't a constituency really motivated, you know, a coalition, a uh, powerful enough coalition to get a carbon tax passed, you know, certainly in the US. In California, we do have uh, what's called a cap and trade program which in a way functions as a bit of a carbon tax. It uh, it basically auctions off the right for polluters to pollute a certain amount of carbon into the atmosphere and they have to pay for that. And so that puts essentially a price on carbon. It's not nearly as high enough as it probably should be to really d- deter their behavior, although, you know, probably it does deter some excess emissions. Uh, that are no longer economical under that program. But yeah, carbon tax would be very elegant. Uh, I'd also just point out that this is a, a global problem, and the US is not the only actor here. So the European Union, for example, has been, I think, in some ways, much more progressive than the United States on trying to attack this problem. So they have a proposed sustainable aviation fuel mandate uh, that would require the aviation fuel supply, to to co- 2.5% of it, to come from sustainable aviation fuel by 2025. That would increase to 5% By 2030. And I just note that Governor Newsom uh, issued an executive order last July requiring California to get to 20% sustainable aviation fuel by the year 2030. So even more aggressive than the EU. We'll see how we get there in California, but the EU is one one entity. Then we also have the International Civil Aviation Organization, or abbreviated as ICAO. It's a United Nations special agency, and they have a goal of net zero uh, carbon emissions for the sector by by 2050. So, you know, there is some international action here, but it really is a situation where California, you know, if we if the shackles were off of us legally, and you know, we'll see what wiggle room we have. We could really do a lot to push the whole world towards a more sustainable aviation sector.
3: Hmm. Well, Anthony writes, lead is still used in small private aircraft. San Jose is closing its Reed Hillview Airport due to lead pollution by private aircraft. Bill writes, being recently retired, now is the time that I look forward to more traveling. I've got an electric vehicle and a solar battery set up at home, so I'm trying to do my part. I'd be willing to pay more for biofuel usage. How can we push for more legislation to accelerate biofuel usage? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
4: Well, great question, and that you know, there's a lot, like I say, that we could do on a personal level. But I think the advocacy piece is really important, letting legislators know how much this issue matters. And there are some organizations that are doing some some really great work out there. Uh, Environmental Defense Fund is a, is a leader on this. Uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, International uh, Clean, uh, International Council on Clean Transportation, ICCT is is doing very good work. So you can look up some of those organizations, and also, like I say, just letting your your congressional representative, your state legislators know. Uh, Um, to advocate for some of these policies, you know, mandates, uh, more research and development. um, You know, and in the meantime, I think, yeah, people can, you know, avoid that excess flight or choose the the less carbon intensive option or or look for the on-road option instead of the airplane flight. I think those are all really important steps people can take.
3: Ethan, we're coming up to the end of the hour, but I do want to ask you building from that a little bit, just in terms of when the things that you're talking about Could happen if you have a rough sense of a timeline um, and also just how realistic a lot of what you're recommending, uh, especially in your report that you recently did, will be.
4: Yeah, well, it's this year, potentially, that the Air Resources Board is going to be looking at that low carbon fuel standard program that I mentioned. And then there will be a debate about whether or not aviation can be, you know, mandatorily in that cap. So they have to reduce their carbon emissions versus just being an opt in. But that's going to be happening potentially this year. The Air Resources Board will be reopening that. So that's something to look at. They also have this mandate as I mentioned from the governor, to come up with a plan to get to 20% sustainable aviation fuel by 2030. So I think, you know, keep your eyes on the Air Resources Board this year, next year, as they kind of put some, you know, details in how they can actually get to that goal. You know, at the federal level, it's, uh, you know, it's tough to imagine much coming out of this Congress, unfortunately, but, you know, we got to still keep pushing on it. And then it could be that as, you know, the EU is considering that, Uh, that mandate that I talked about, that could be happening very soon. In fact, it may have already happened. I need to double check. Uh, So that may push the U.S. to further action, too. So a lot happening just in the next few years, really, on this issue.
3: Well, Ethan's report is called Clean Takeoff. Ethan Alkind is director of the Climate Program at the Center for Law, Energy, and the Environment at UC Berkeley School of Law. Thanks so much.
4: My pleasure, Mina. Thank
0: you for having me.
3: And thank you, listeners. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim.